question all weekend. Welcome everybody to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J, Sue L, Audrey N and um, Johan N. If you have any questions or concerns during the meeting, please contact either the host or any of the co-host, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, we don't record that. So please do um, feel free to ask Harlan any questions <clears throat> you have at that time. We've just posted a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function, and also a link to the Dallas retreat with information on that also. Megan. We ask that if you could please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study and also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating or if you need to step away from your screen for any time, just please disconnect your camera. So we will now go over to Harlan G in Scottsdale. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. So excited to be here. Uh, I just want to... Um, remind everybody that this is a very special, very special time of the year uh, for a lot of people, lots of things happening. Uh, March 25th, we're going to have some speakers here because I'm going to Dallas, Texas to do a one day big book workshop. But until then, no interruptions. Uh, I will also be on the virtual retreat. There's a virtual workshop. The virtual intergroup, that's more accurate, is sponsoring a um, workshop. And I'll be speaking tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern time. And I'll be speaking on chapter five, how it works. Chapter five, how it works. Very excited about that. Um, we're going to start on page 83 this morning when we get going, but we have been talking about step nine, when to make amends, when not to make amends. And this is something where we really need a good sponsor because I've seen this and many of you have seen this too, where people with all the best intentions in the world are rushing out there to make amends and in their zeal to make them, sometimes we can cause more problems than was the original harm because we're running out there making amends to people either we shouldn't be making amends to, we, don't, we didn't really harm them ever, or it's an amends that would hurt them. So you, we really need, all of us need good, sober, informed, uninvolved guidance from an objective recovered sponsor. And that's something that's very, very important. So step nine is a critical step in our development. And step nine is going to be the last of the steps that is going to concern itself with what I call that middle area of four through nine, which is the inventory process. A lot of people think that the inventory process is just four and five. It is not. The inventory process is really four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And as we start rounding that corner 
and we are now making amends and we see on page 83, which is where we're going to pick it up today, we're going to see the words on page 83, the spiritual life is not a theory, we have to live it. And if you'll notice, we have to live it is in italics. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion. It's not a fact. This is not verifiable in the big book. It's not verifiable in scripture. It's not verifiable anywhere, but in my opinion that I'm aware of. Here is something that I believe defines God for me. This is for me, not for you. So in questions and answers, I don't want to hear any you said this or you said that. I don't, I'm just giving you my opinion. For me, God is that which I spend the most time thinking about, obsessing about. This is and what I work toward. My actions and my thoughts are very, very indicative of where my soul really is. If my heart and my soul were all about making money all day long, money, 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 I'm just money obsessed, money crazed, then no matter what time I pray, no matter what time I take to pray, sorry, no matter what time I take to give an homage to God, if money is what I'm thinking about, if money is what I'm working toward most of my day, that, in my opinion, for me, becomes my God. It can be anything. It can be sex. It can be money. It can be physical fitness. Uh, I have a very dear friend who is, who has two children one is a one is a boy one is a girl they're both married they've both been married within the last uh couple of year year and a half actually two years and this young man who I love dearly love him dearly I would take a bullet for him he was obsessed at one time in his life with physical fitness. He would get up in the morning and he would lift the house and then he would go next door and lift up the neighbor's house or whatever. He was very obsessed with physical fitness and he would run and he would do this and he would do that. And that became his God. Everything about his life happened to be about physical fitness. And he's a very, very nice young man. He lives in New Jersey now, and I love him to death. And he's not that way anymore. Now he's got uh, he's got a wife and they're, you know, they, he's got a whole other life now. But for a long time, or not for a long, for a while, he was absolutely obsessed with physical fitness. And this became his God. And we all either are or we know people that really over-concern them themselves with one thing. They're just very sort of tunnel visioned into one thing. And if that's my criteria of what God is, then I have to look at this sentence and I have to say, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Now, the question obviously arises, how do I live a spiritual life? Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to pray. 
That's very, very important. Now, I practice prayer, and I also practice meditation. I like to practice two-way prayer, and I do step 11 in the morning. I actually do it with a very special person in my life. I do step 11 at night. I do that with a very special person in my life, and we enjoy doing that, and that's just part of what we do uh, together, and even though geography might separate us, we have this time that we do step 11 in the morning morning and in the evening. And it's very, very good for me because I really enjoy doing it. And I never really did it with another person. And now that I have, it really just amplifies the meaning for me. But what else is involved? Now, if I just did step 11 in the morning and I did step 11 at night, I don't think that that's really living a spiritual life. What else do I have to do during the day? Well, I get I better check in with my sponsor. I better sponsor other people. Now, if you're not at a point in your program where you're able to sponsor other people, what is the most effective thing you can do to work a spiritual to work a spiritual program? Do your own work. Work toward your spiritual awakening. Do whatever your sponsor is having you do at any particular moment. What else is it very important for me to do? I do vision in the morning for two hours. I do not miss. I'm walking. The, for the first meeting, I'm not walking the whole time, but I'm walking for a, a significant part of it. And I also do the second hour. And I also do, I do the Scottsdale meetings in the evening, uh, six days a week. And then on Saturday, I do the family afterward. I'm going to be on the family afterward tonight. There's a very special speaker on there. Not me, not me. Somebody who was part of that sober eating workshop that some of you were at in uh, Los Angeles. And he is going to be the speaker tonight on uh, family afterward, my strong personal suggestion is don't miss it. He's a really good speaker. He's a really good guy. And, and he's done the sober eating workshop for quite some time. You're going to be really, really uh, excited and you're going to learn. And he's just great. He's just fabulous. Don't miss that. I'll be on there too. Um, but the so the spiritual life needs my attention. And how else do I live a spiritual life? And yes, so that you don't have to ask me later, I do work. Yes, I have other obligations. I have friends. I have people who uh, are in my life very definitely. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. But what else do I do during the day to live a spiritual life? I take and make outreach calls. I am available as best I can. If I can't take your call, some of you know, if I can't take your call right at that moment, I will return your phone call. I will make sure that I return it. If you text me, I will text you back. If you uh, email me, I'll email you back. If you call me, I'll call you back. I pride myself on being a very good, conscientious communicator. That's very important to me. What else do I do to live a spiritual life? Every single day of my life, when I get up, I have a little notebook here, right where I sit. There's a little notebook here next to where I work, where I sit. And it's this brown thing that I'm showing you right here. What do I do with this? I do a gratitude list. 
And my gratitude list is very important because if I have an attitude of gratitude, it's very hard for me to move into the direction of the food or into negativity. Yes, I get angry. Yes, I get scared. Yes, I get negative. That happens. And sometimes that will happen because I'm a what? I'm a human being, right? And no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. But the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And by living it, that means it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. And I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to grow from it. I also have to draw the line. And what line is it that I'm talking about drawing? Sometimes when I'm eating lunch, I don't take the call. I let it go to voicemail. Sometime when I'm eating dinner, I don't take the call. I let it go to voicemail. What do I know? I have to honor myself by just eating dinner and not eating it with a phone in my ear. Certainly if it's a friend, certainly if it's a personal kind of thing, yes, I'll pick up the phone. But if it's a program call or any other kind of call, uh, I'm gonna sometimes let it go to voicemail, but I will return the call. You have my word on that. You have my track record on that. Sometimes I'm called upon to travel for OA. I'm going to Dallas, Texas in March. On the 24th, 25th, and 26th, I'm going to be in Dallas, Texas. And I'm going to go to Silicon Valley and I'm, you know, whatever there may be. And uh, I heard a rumor that this woman in Ireland named Maria, but I don't know her real name. I don't know her name. She's laughing now. She's laughing hysterically. I heard a rumor that I'm going to go to Dublin, but I'm not so sure about that because even though she's laughing like a school girl, I'm not so sure that that's going to come to fruition. But if I can make her laugh in any given day, I love to do that. So anyway, but I have to be ready when God calls upon me. So and he'll call upon me in very different ways, very, very different ways. So the spiritual life is not a theory, we have to live it. And if I'm also aware of things, like to say, how can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. If I'm aware that I've received a miracle, how do I know I've received a miracle? Because most of them, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Well, how do I, when do I thank God? Well, I'll tell you sometimes I thank God. I'm gonna thank God today because after I eat lunch with some friends, I'm going to the grocery store. If I don't go to the grocery store, we're going to have some problems around here in this house. And every time I'm able to go to the grocery store, I don't miss I don't miss times. I don't forget and I don't miss. When I walk out of there, I ask myself a question in the line. Is there anything in this grocery cart that shouldn't be here that I don't think God would want me to have? And if the answer is no, everything checks out, then I say, thank you, God, for not allowing me to hurt myself with my disease. And then after I pay, I say, thank you, God, that I was able to pay. I don't always, you know, I don't walk down the street saying, oh, thank you, God, for letting me take another step. I'm not ridiculous about it. And God wouldn't expect me to be that pedantic about it. But what I am saying to you is this. 
there comes points in every day of my life where I have to know in my heart that the possibility that I could achieve this by myself is not there. Not there. When I go to my post office box and there's checks in there from my business, thank you, God. When I go to my post office and there's bills in there that I know I can pay with no problem, thank you, God. When there's bills in there that I know I'm going to pay, but it's going to be stressful, thank you, God. And it doesn't take more than a second, but you have to keep working at it. It isn't something that's going to come to you overnight where you're going to do it. It's like anything else. You have to work at it. I have to work at it. I work at this constantly. And there are times I forget. There are times I drop the ball. Yes, there are times I do that. But I really am more conscious of it as time goes on. It gets easier and easier to remember. And it becomes more ingrained in me as I as I do it. It's sort of like muscle memory, muscle memory. And the more you do it, the better off I feel because God is making things possible for me today. And I know it that I could not have done this on my own, by myself, on my own unaided willpower. It is absolutely not one of the possibilities that I could have done this or done that on my own. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Very, very important for me to remember because I can get full of myself. I can get very ego-driven and I can think I did this. And the truth is I couldn't, I didn't, God did, I need to say thank you. Let's continue. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not urge them. I have never had any luck or any kind of successes urging people to live any way other than what they wanted to do. I have a friend of mine, a person that's very dear to me does not stop at stop signs. I can't imagine what this person is, what craziness this person is affected by, but they don't like to stop at stop signs. So I've reached new vistas of prayer when I ride with this person. Trust me on that one. But I can't make someone do something that they do not want to do. If you would have, if, if I hear this a hundred times a year, that's probably underestimating. I came into this program, I was 24 years old. And I get people telling me all the time, I wish I had recovered when I was, you know, 20 or 25, like you or whatever. You know what? There's a, there's a cosmic timing to things. There's God's timing to things. And you came in at the exact second that you were ready to hear the message. So don't beat yourself up. I sometimes do that too. I, I go back. I, I, I have a couple of friends of mine um, that tell me, you live in the past. You live in the past. And to a great degree, they're correct. They 
absolutely are. I spend quite, I quite a, a lot of time, you know, looking in life's rear view mirror. I wish I would have met this person then. And I wish I would have done this. And I wish I wouldn't have made that mistake. And I wish I wouldn't have been over there or over here. I do a lot of that too. But here's what I know. And this is what I know in my heart. I'm right where I'm supposed to be today. I'm exactly right where I'm supposed to be today. You know, every morning I read the acceptance paragraphs and it says nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. I'm right where I am and I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You know, doctors have been signing my death warrant since the late 1960s. When I was nine years old, nine years old, it was 1963 and Kennedy uh, was the president and I was put on heavy duty amphetamines for diet pills. And the doctor was screaming at my mother and screaming at me about how I'm going to die and I'm not going to live long and I'm this and I'm going to that and we need to do something about his weight. And doctors have been signing my death warrant for 60 years and I'm still alive. I'm still alive and I can walk three miles without stopping. And not too long from now, I'm gonna be walking through that Dallas airport. And you know, that DFW airport, man, the, the Dallas Cowboys and the Bears and a couple of other football teams could move into that airport and play football in there. No problem. That place is huge. And you know what? I'm very grateful. I can walk and I can do what I need to do. You know, so it's really a miracle. Another miracle I had, I'm going to see someone in, in the not too distant future. I'm going to see someone and I need to fly to see them. And I looked at the seating on the airplane on the airplane going out and the only seat they had left was a middle seat and this person and I were on the phone when we you know I was doing the tickets and this person said to me you can fit in the middle seat and you know I had to take a minute and I had to say you know what I I really can I really can because I couldn't fit in one airplane seat no matter what the situation was. I remember very well the very first time I ever came out to Arizona. It was 1978 and I flew out on Christmas Day. And I flew back on New Year's Day. Well, Christmas Day, for all those who don't know, if you can, it is a dream to fly on Christmas Day. Dream. It's a dream because there's no one. Everybody is where they want to be by that day. So there was like 10 people on this airplane and the pilot opened up the bar for free, which didn't help me because I'm not a drinker. I'm thinking, man, forget the bar, open up the snack bar, open up, you know, whatever. No, I'm kidding. But the bottom line is, is that I remember very well thanking God because I couldn't fit in one airplane seat. I had to 
sit in the seat, but I was taking up most or all of the other seat. This is a while before I came into program, a little bit, not too long. This was uh, two months. I came in February 2nd of 79. My dad had just died a few weeks prior to this, and I'm on my way to Arizona to visit somebody, somebody who now lives here also now lives in Tempe, and, and I live in Scottsdale. But anyway, I came out, and I was so grateful. But on the way back, New Year's Day, well, there that's a full airplane. That's a pretty full airplane. So it's quite the opposite situation. But the bottom line is I am in places today that as I dig deeper into my life, I know you can't get to without God's help, without God's guidance, because there's no way I can do that. But as far as urging people to live by spiritual principles, probably not the greatest use of my time, I would probably have better luck trying to talk this wall behind me into becoming a pencil. That would probably be better time spent. Let's move on. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. You know, I've mentioned very little to some of my friends about anything God or spirituality based. I live in a world of recovery. I live in a world of addicts, but I have many friends who are not part of this world. They're not part of our movement. They're there are people who just don't. And I have a very dear friend. He lives in the Bay Area. He's dying. He's dying of this disease. But every time I've ever broached the subject, he just derisively snorts and he just very condescendingly, you know, dismisses it, dismisses me. So I don't say anything to him about it. I have other friends, you know, other high school friends, other grammar school friends, what have you, and they don't live in this world either. So I really don't sit and preach to them. I really don't say, oh, I prayed today. Oh, I did this. Oh, I did that. I don't say that to them. It's not appropriate. It's absolutely not appropriate. Of course, with program people, you also have to watch out because some of them are more receptive to it than others. So I try to feel the person out and see, you know, where are they in things? And if we can talk about it, great. And if we can't talk about it, that's okay too. I'm not here to change anybody but myself. I'm, I'm only here to grow. I'm here to recover. They will change in time. Sometimes yes, sometimes I have found no. But that's, you know, somebody very wise that lives in Los Angeles, California said to me, eventually you're going to stop eating. Let's just hope it's while you're still alive. Okay. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. Let's look at that sentence. It says our behaviors will convince them more than our words. Let's go back to the very, very beginning. And let's go back for just a second. If you don't want to change your page, I'll read it for you. You don't even have to change your page. But I'm going to go all the way back to the forward to the first edition. The first edition, you don't have to go back. It's on page XIII if you want to. Sounds like I'm stuttering, but I'm not. XIII. Sounds like Ricky Ricardo. I, 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 Lucy, you bought another hat? What the hell? Okay. It says here in the second sentence that this book ever presented to the world, it says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say to tell 
other alcoholics precisely how they should recover is the main purpose of this book. It says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, past tense, is the main purpose of this book. Go back to page 83, if you will. To demonstrate is the most important thing I can do. There's a famous football coach who lived in Chicago, and he said something that when I heard it, I was blown away and I never forgot it. This is what he said. What you're doing is screaming so loudly, I cannot hear what you're saying. What you're doing is screaming so loudly, I cannot hear what you are saying. Very, very important for me to remember. And that actions speak louder than words. Remember when we were in step nine and we said a simple demonstration uh, uh, will not fit, uh, a simple muttering of, of apology will not fit the bill, I'm paraphrasing. A demonstration of amends is much more effective than just words. You know, I'm a, I'm a chubby Jewish boy from Chicago, and I lived along Devon Avenue and Albany my whole life. And what I learned is along life's path, and that is what you do is so important, not what you say. But what I also do is, the reason I say I'm a chubby Jewish boy is I follow St. Francis prayer. Every morning of my life, I read and I listen to an audio. I don't read and I listen to an audio of the St. Francis prayer. And I learned a little bit about St. Francis. And this is what he said. He instructed his followers to preach the gospel. And only if you must use words, preach the gospel. And only if you must use words. So we're called upon repeatedly in this little paragraph to live a life that exemplifies what can be done in recovery. You know, when I go to Chicago, as I do, and I'm going to be going there a lot more now, but the bottom line is when I go home to Chicago, I almost, not almost, I love running into people that I went to high school with, because I'll let you in on a little secret that's very human, but you can't tell anyone. There's 140 of you, so don't tell anyone. I'm, I get excited. I get off on the fact that I'm 108 pounds lighter today than I was when I was a senior at Mather High School in Chicago, 100 and 107 and change. I'm 107 and change lighter today than I was when I was a senior at Mather in 1972. I get off on that and I get some nice reactions. If I haven't seen them for a while, I get some really interesting reactions. One person at a reunion years ago really chastised me because I said I was Harlan Grabowski. And she said, that's not nice. Harlan died. Why are you saying that? She said, that's very rude of you. I had to pull out my driver's license to show her that I was indeed who I said I was. But she thought I was just kidding because she believed that I was dead. So to 
have those kind of reactions, I got to admit, it's really, really nice because I certainly had the other side of that coin my entire life. My entire life was spent in the shame and horror and nightmarish um, uh, uh, abuse of being in a fatter body than the last time that they had seen me. And this is where I got a lot of my uh, abuse. This is where I got a lot of my ridicule. This is where I lived in a lot of shame. And you know what the disease does is it isolates you. And this is one of the ways it does is when you gain weight, like I would do, you don't want to see people. You run from people. You just can't imagine how horrible it is to see people who tell you, oh my God, what happened to you? You're going to die and blah, blah, blah. You know, And it's a horrible, horrible feeling. So this is a very nice feeling. This is a very nice kind of feeling. All right. Page 83. We must remember. Oh, it says our behavior will convince them more than our words. And we covered that. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anybody. You know, for a long time, we behaved in a certain way. And we would say to people that loved us, that may have lived with you, bring me ice cream, bring me cake, bring me cookies. And for a long time, they did, because giving you cake or giving you ice cream settled you down. It calmed you down, because as compulsive overeaters, that effect would sort of give you that sense of ease and comfort. So they learned that if they brought you the cookies or they brought you the ice cream, that it would make their life a lot easier. So they did it. Well, lo and behold, now you're telling them not to bring these things to you. And sometimes they get very, very skeptical about that. Very, very skeptical. And our behaviors, remember this, attitude does not change behaviors. Behaviors change attitudes. My behavior will change your attitude a lot more than my words. I have a friend who lives uh, in, in Chicago, in the area of Chicago. They live across the street from a place called Poop Park. And it's an interesting place. And there's penthouse and they overlook, they peruse Poop Park. But anyway, this person knows what I like for this or certain behaviors of mine. I never sat and explained to this person this is what I like. This is what I do. This is where I go. They learned it by watching me and I them. I learned certain things that they liked, that this person likes by watching them, by just listening to them. This is how you learn. Well, we've been teaching people for decades how to treat us or who we were. Now, all of a sudden, we may change quickly, but they won't. So how do you teach them? You teach them by behaving in a way that is based in recovery rather than a way that is based in the disease. Very important. Attitudes don't change behaviors. Excuse me. Uh, attitudes don't change behaviors. Behaviors change attitudes of others, of others. Okay, let's continue. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. Let's talk about that for just a second. I was not a good son to my mother, not by anyone's stretch of the imagination. I treated her as disrespectfully as I possibly could. I blamed her for everything. 
I blamed her for everything. But the most important thing I learned in the ensuing years is I blamed her for the unhappiness the unwe, the, the restlessness, the horrible shame and the horrible ridicule that I endured as a fat boy. And it really wasn't her fault. She did the best she could. She had limitations, much more so than I was aware of. She did the best she could. And I'll tell you something about my mother that I didn't really know until long after she was dead. She loved me very, very much. And also, they, my mother and father fought like cats and dogs for the entire life that they were together. They were just not a functional couple at all. How I got born is a mystery that I couldn't tell you. But here's what I also learned. She loved my dad and my dad loved her. They just had a very weird, offbeat nutty, crazy way of showing it at the top of their lungs with pots and pans flying through the air and insults. They would say things to each other you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. But I can never really make amends to my mom and dad because they were gone by the time I came in. My mom died in 76. My dad died in November of 78. And I came in here on February 2nd, 1979. It was a Friday night in 1979. You can check me out. My memory is pretty good on that. If you check out a calendar of 1979, you will find that February 2nd, was a Friday indeed, and that was the first day, first time I ever went to a meeting of OA. And there are many wrongs which I cannot fully write because the people I wronged or stole from, deceived, manipulated, are dead, <laughs> or I can't find them. But in my case, mostly they're dead. In your case, maybe you can't find them. Women are much harder to find than men, because women do something men don't normally do. They change their last name. And when you change your last name, you become harder to locate, you become harder to find. So if you've harmed a female, and it's been a while, sometimes what happens is you can't find them because they're not Susie Brown anymore. They're now Susie Smith or Susie green or whatever the hell they are. And that makes it very, very tough to find them. Because as they say, women change their last names where men generally, not always, generally do not. Let's continue. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. My birthday is coming up in May. Me and Nancy have the same birthday. And on my birthday, I write them a letter. I write them um, a thing and I say, thank you. And I'm sorry. And I don't discuss their faults. I don't discuss the thing. You know, I don't say, mom, I know you were nuts. So this is why I did that. No, 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 no. Their faults are not discussed. My dad was an immigrant to this country. He came here when he was 14 years old under horrifically murderous conditions. He has seen human beings at their very worst. 
He witnessed firsthand the murder of brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, mother and father, grandparents on both sides, aunts and uncles that were obliterated off the face of the earth for the reason that they celebrated Sabbath on Friday night, Saturday, rather than Sunday. He was a very injured person, but English was far from his first language, and he did a very good job of insulating himself into a community where he didn't need to speak English. So he didn't need it, and he didn't speak it unless he had to. He spoke it with me, obviously, but he and he would speak it as he went out into the world. He had enough skills at it to get by and do the things, you know, buy something at the store or, you know, go to the doctor or what have you. know, he had the skills to do that. But he used to just infuriate me because he would he would never pronounce anything correctly. And I have a friend of mine. She lives here in uh, Scottsdale. She lives about five minutes from me. And she would say to me, he's just messing with you. He's just messing with you. Don't let him. But anyway, I would I was so ashamed of him. You know, he could he wasn't like the other dads. He was much much older. And I was, when I was born, he was 54 years old. So by the time I was a senior at Mather in 1972, my dad was 72 years old when I graduated high school. And he only lived about five or six, six more years after that. And most of those years, he was riddled with cancer. He, he was a smoker and he smoked one after the other and he smoked those Fakakta Chesterfields with no filter. It was disgusting. Oh my God, it was sickening. And he had lung cancer that metastasized and it just ransacked him. But I was ashamed of him. I, want, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. And I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very, very different. Very, to say the least, very, very different. But I wanted what I wanted. And I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie. And I wanted them to be young and American and rich. I wanted them to be wealthy so they could leave me all their money so I wouldn't have to work so hard. And that was not the case. Believe me when I tell you, that was not the case with those two. But they were my parents and they loved me and I'm here and I got born and they instilled me with certain things that are utilitarian to me to this day. Certain values. My father he loved this country. He had a passion. And when he would hear the Star Spangled Banner, because I would watch baseball on Channel 9 in Chicago, you know, I'd watch Jack Brickhouse, and I'm a Cubs fan, and I would watch the Cubs. And, and he, if he was around, he didn't, my father didn't know third base from the goalpost or the basket. He had no clue. I mean, no clue whatsoever. Not a clue. Um, but he would hear this, the, the Star Spangled Banner and he was, tears would well up in his eyes and he would say, that's the, my favorite song. That's the best song that anybody ever sang. That's what he would say to me. And he would see things like birds, pigeons. Downtown Chicago has a lot of pigeons. I wish they'd crap on the damn Picasso, which I think is ugly. If I ever get to be mayor of Chicago, first thing I'm doing is I'm dumping that Picasso in the lake. 
Let the fish look at it because I sure as hell don't want to. But anyway, that's for another that's for another session. But he would see pigeons or he would see a rabbit or a squirrel. And he'd say, what a country, what a country, he would say. And I'd say, why? He'd say, because if this was a poor country, those pigeons, you'd eat them. And I'd say, I'd never eat a pigeon. And he would put his hand on the side of my face and he would say, you get hungry enough and you'll eat them. Or I'd say, I'm hungry. And he would put his hand on me and say, my son, which means my son, you don't know what that means. You have no idea what that even means. And I would take him in the car. I've said this before. I would take him in the car to Wisconsin or I would take him whatever. And he would, it would it, when you get to the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, there is a, he couldn't say Wisconsin. He'd say Wisconsin. He, and I used to get mad at him for that. <laughs> he would get to the border and it would say, you're leaving Illinois. Governor Otto Kerner wishes you well. And he went to jail, Otto Kerner. But then it would say, Tommy, Tom, Governor Tommy Thompson of Wisconsin welcomes you to America's dairy land. Welcome to Wisconsin. And he would cry. He would cry because he couldn't believe that such a thing was even possible. That you could go from Illinois to Wisconsin. You don't need a permit. You don't have to pass through a checkpoint. You don't have military people looking in your luggage to see what you're smuggling, what you're carrying. You don't have to get searched. They're not going to go through your belongings and check your papers. You can just go because you want to go. And these are some of the things of awe and wonderment that through his simple eyes of an immigrant that he instilled in me, that he filled me with an awe of what this is. This is the greatest social experiment ever devised by mankind. Love it, hate it. It's a great undertaking of freedom. And he had an appreciation. And when it would be voting, or he would say voting, and I'd get, God damn it, Dad, you can say voting, but you can't say Wisconsin. Why can't you just say Wisconsin? Why can't you say voting? If you can say Wisconsin, why can't you? And he would just laugh. And he would always respond by saying to me, I never went to day camp mid a Superman lunchbox. That, that was his response. It, it always was the same response. Never very. I never went to day camp mid a Superman lunchbox. That meant I wasn't an American like you. You're lucky. You're an American. I'm not. I, 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 he was then, but he wasn't born here. He's born 10,000. He was born 10,000 miles away from where I was born. But he would marvel at one person takes office, one person leaves office. There isn't a shot fired and no one died. And these are the things he instilled me with. How do I make amends to him for that? I can't. The only thing that I can do is live my life as best I can. And I'm doing the best I can to live a life according to what would make, in my mind, make them proud. Maybe your parents are gone. 
Maybe you have a sister or a brother or a cousin or a niece or a nephew or somebody precious to you, a friend that's gone, that you had harmed through the years. How do you make amends for, to them? You make amends by recovering from this disease, which is if they loved you, that's what they would have wanted for you. And you make amends by living your life, not your words, but your actions and words too. According to what you know, now that they're in heaven, what would they want for you? How would they want you to live? Are you paying it back? And you don't have to make amends just to the people that are living. I try to make amends to my mom and dad all the time by living my life according to a doctrine that says this is what would make them proud. So that's some food for thought. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. Who is it that cannot be seen? Someone who is violent, someone who it would not be in your in their best interest for you to see. If it's a domestic situation, you have no right to knock on the door and say to somebody's wife or husband, I've been involved with your spouse, or you have no right to do that. You have no right to destroy their, their marital serenity. You don't have a right to do that. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. You do these things as soon as you can. Don't wait. Don't wait. You don't have a contract. I don't have a contract in my possession that says, this is how long I'm going to live. This is this and this is that. I don't have a contract. Do it now. Don't delay. Do it now. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. What does that mean? I get asked that quite a bit. This is a sentence that evokes a lot of questions. Servile comes from servitude, same root word as servant. Servile and scraping means, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, the, you know, you're trying to kind of win them over through pity. Be a person, stand on your feet, be an adult. I did this. I'm sorry. Here's the money. Here's the this. Here's the that. I broke your coffee maker. Here's a coffee maker. I broke your car. Here's a car. Whatever that may be. But you do not have to, you shouldn't be, you must not be servile or scraping. And that means you're trying to diminish yourself, acting in a way that is not in God's not what God had intended for you. You are a human being. You made a mistake. You're not a bad person trying to get good. You're a sick person trying to get well. Be easy on yourself. Be, be easy on yourself. Okay? You are a child of God. You, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. You are a child of God. Don't ever forget that. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. You do not have to chastise yourself because you made mistakes. You don't have to be anybody's doormat because you made a mistake. You made a mistake. You're owning that mistake. Let's not get crazy here. 
You make it good as far as you can. And beyond that, you are powerless. You do not have to be servile or scraping. This is an amazing journey. This is why this works where other things do not work. This works because what it does is it cleanses the entire soul so that the unrest, the pain, and the suffering that we suffer at the hands of the mental twist do not become operative and the brain sees no need to drive you relentlessly, unmercifully, constantly, irresistibly into the arms of a Kit Kat bar. You don't have to eat Nestle's Crunch Bars because remember something, that food was never the problem. Let's go back to the beginning. Food was the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of normal human emotion. All human beings have guilt, shame, remorse, happiness, accomplishment, fear, anger, sadness. We all have the gamut of human emotions. But in a normal person, they are able to assuage those feelings, to comfort themselves through other methods, such as maybe reading a good book or listening to music or going and hitting golf balls or playing some tennis or taking a bubble bath or whatever. But when our brain sees this discomfort within our soul, our brain says, Eat some Doritos. Eat some Girl Scout cookies. They'll make you feel better. Because our brain knows that this is something that has worked for us our entire lives. That there is nothing, no work, no activity we can engage in that is more comforting on a very temporary basis than candy, cakes, cookies, French fries, what have you. And by eating those things, the brain says, I told you so, because to a great degree for about 10 seconds, nothing feels better. Did anything feel better when you were sad than candy? I don't think so. But what happens is it turns on you because eating the candy will trigger the physical allergy. And the physical allergy will make it impossible for you to stop. See, if all I had was the mental twist, I would carry M&Ms with peanuts. Obviously, these are not Jewish people buying the other M&Ms, but I like the ones with the peanuts. Okay, I'd carry them around like in a Batman utility belt. And if I got scared or jealous or angry or guilt ridden or whatever, or happy, I would take an M&M, eat the M&M and I'd be fine. It'd be like pills. But I can't do that because I also have the physical allergy and that allergy makes it impossible for me to stop. And so what I have is a very, very serious twofold illness. And the twofold illness is 
the physical allergy and the twist of the mind. But if I already feel better, then the brain will not see the need to drive me into the food irresistibly. So do you understand what we're doing here? By going through this amends process, one through nine, now we're doing 10s. Now we're doing 11s. Remember, you, you're still doing 10s and 11s. Pretty soon now you're going to be doing 12s. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> now that you feel better, you're reacting sanely and normally. Sanity has returned. And the urge to destroy yourself with McDonald's or pizza or God knows what is simply not there. It's simply not there. The urge to eat has been short-circuited. I'm probably not going to eat uh, Nestle's Crunch Bars today. I hope I don't. Maybe I will. I don't, I don't know. I didn't eat them yesterday. Let's just go with the known rather than the... I didn't eat Nestle's Crunch Bars yesterday. But here's the nugget. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. And I didn't think that was possible. How could you get up in the morning and not want to eat a Nestle's Crunch Bar? That's not possible. But I yesterday proved to myself that it is not only possible, but the urge to eat a Nestle's Crunch Bar has not entered my mind for over 24 years. I have not thought about eating that crap in 24 years. I react sanely and normally around food. I don't put food in my mouth that is going to destroy me. I hope today has been helpful. I sincerely hope that you have picked something up about this unbelievable couple of paragraphs. I know I'm going very slow. Next week, we're going to start the promises. But I hope that this has been helpful and I hope that this has, has made some sense to you. Okay, before I turn this back over to Maria or Sue or, or Nancy or whoever, I don't know. But before I do, I'm going to ask you for a couple of things. Number one, if you ask